So we now come to the part of the progress of insight where insights are initiated through direct experience. It builds on all the insights you've had before, but now uh, the, the purification by knowledge and vision of the way. It's no longer are you taking something you intellectually understood and then looking to see if it's really true by examining your own experience. And uh, you'll, you'll notice that the knowledge of arising and passing away is kind of split in half. There's a part A that was in the last section and then part B of arising and passing away that is the beginning of this section. This is what's referred to as the, as the true beginning of, of insight. Uh, sounds kind of derogatory towards everything that went before. <laughs> but I, I don't think it means that. It means that uh, this is now, this, this stage of insight is really leaving intellect, the intellectual aspect behind. And so maybe we should call it the true beginning of pure insight that's no longer being supported intellectually. So as a part of the arising and passing away, that uh, experience uh, uh, things things arising and passing away that makes a really strong impression of of uh, impermanence is an example, and then that greatly speeded up version that uh, leads to uh, an experience uh, of emptiness, catching the mind and the act of projecting its reality. That would be another example. Uh, you've already understood these things as well as you can intellectually, but when you have those experiences, those experiences <coughs> themselves trigger a level of insight that uh, goes quite a bit beyond what's happened to now, before now. And this insight is it's settling deeper and deeper into your mind. When the knowledge of arising and passing away turns into the knowledge of contemplation of dissolution, now what this means subjectively is you've been watching things arising and passing away. Now all of a sudden you find your mind is just zooming in on the passing away aspect. And in particular, it's noticing the passing away of, you know, you're, you have your attention focused on the sensations of, of the breath, right? So what you're seeing is that the sensation and the knowing of the sensation are two different <coughs> things. But you see the sensation passes away, and then the consciousness of the sensation passes away as well. Now how you can do this is, is that awareness, your introspective awareness, is watching what your mind is doing. And so that includes watching what attention is doing. So attention is focused on the sensation, and attention knows the sensation, and then the sensation passes away, and, and the knowing of it passes away, and the next sensation arises. So this is being experienced through awareness as it's happening in attention, and your mind just zooms in on the passing away part, on the dissolution. And what strikes you so strongly is that everything is passing away. 
everything is going away, everything is disappearing. And not only that, it's not just the sensations. That's all right. Sensations come, sensations go. Well, that's all right. Well, we hurt. But the consciousness that knows the sensations is passing away. And that, that is what captures the attention, uh, captures the focus of your consciousness, really, not so much attention. Um, this happens as, like, you know, you experience, it's just that your mind is doing the zoom in. Where is this coming from? It's coming from the, the unconscious mind is driving it, because the unconscious mind has been watching the arising and passing away, and has noticed and noticed this dissolution aspect, and now it wants it wants to observe this dissolution very closely, and so that's where the urge comes from. That's why you find you find that all you're seeing is the passing away, uh, alternately of the object of attention and of the consciousness of the object. Not alternately, rather that the consciousness of the object arises with the object. I mean, you can't know an object's there until you're conscious of it, right? So, the object arises and in that moment you're also conscious of it. You can't see the arising of the consciousness separately. But, as the object passes away, and, and as I already pointed out to you, there's always that little bit of reverberation <coughs> of the object that remains. And so, the mind is able to focus in on that enough to see, to, to watch the consciousness fading away as a separate event. And so that's the knowledge of contemplation of dissolution. This is where impermanence, impermanence is really being seen at a, at a an understood, at a very deep level of the mind. Now, when that insight matures, in other words, when the mind has observed this enough and found a way to incorporate it into, incorporate it as a part of reality, then you move to part two of this, uh, or, or B, part B of part two. <laughs> These next four knowledges they're known, they're also known as the dukkha jnanas, or the knowledges of suffering. Jnana is the Pali word for knowledge. And so if we, if I put the Pali words up here, you'd see that, that, uh, that each of these knowledges would be uh, called a jnana. And collectively they're called the knowledges of suffering, the dukkha jnanas, because this is really where the insight into suffering comes together and it gels and becomes really solid. Um, and as you mentioned before, how you experience these is going to depend on how strongly attached you still are to the notion that you're that you are a separate self. It's also going to depend on how how much Samatha you have in the form of joy, tranquility, and equanimity. Because you're seeing very disturbing things here. And if you're seeing those very disturbing things from the standpoint of equanimity, 
It means that, you're, that you don't react as strongly. If your mind is in a, in a joyful and tranquil state, then it's able to observe these very dis disturbing things uh, much more easily. And, and it's a gentle process. Coming into this part from a really solid place of sanata, and if you've already got a really good understanding of, of, of no-self, then you'll slip right through six, seven, eight, and nine. You might not even be able to distinguish them as being separate insight stages. They just all flow together, they happen, they happen gently, they happen fairly quickly. What they involve, let me just explain what the essence of, of them is. The knowledge of appearance as fearful is the insight that because things appear to be real and substantial and and enduring from their own side, side, that this this is a trap. This is scary because when the when the mind sees them in this way, rather than as they really are, as impermanent and empty, then this is bound to cause suffering. Right? So that's what it means. The knowledge of appearance as fearful. The appearance that it refers to is the appearance that things ordinarily have of some kind of substantiality and, and self-nature and, and enduringness that you can hold on to. So that's the appearance. And, that, and it is fearful because the mind can become trapped by the mind has been. And the realization here is all my life my mind's been trapped by this false appearance and that's been causing me all of the suffering. So as a knowledge of suffering, um, it is not the same as, or as a knowledge of fearfulness, it's not the same as experiencing fear itself as a knowledge, as an understanding, as an insight. Likewise, if we move to the number seven, uh, contemplation of danger, that is the insight that it's it is a trap, it is fearful, and it's really dangerous. And so there's the insight into the aspect of danger. And once again, seeing something as being fearful and dangerous is not the same as experiencing the fear uh, that is the result of the danger. That moves then to the knowledge of contemplation of disenchantment. Seeing that these things that appear this way are, are fearful and dangerous, there's experience of disenchantment. Well, I'm not going to be fascinated by these things in the past the way I was. In the future, the way I was in the past. Right? And now I've understood them. I've seen them. I've seen into the danger. I've seen how they've been causing me suffering all this time. I've seen the problem. So I experienced disenchantment. And then the knowledge of desire for deliverance is the next insight that arises that, wow, the best thing I can do is get to the end of the path so that I'm no longer subject to being trapped by appearances, that I'm no longer uh, 
I, I'm no longer subject to the danger that lies in them. And there's nothing terribly traumatic about that. But I didn't have the alternate name on uh, this first one. The alternate is alternate name. It's actually an alternate translation of what is what it is. Alternate translation of the folly is knowledge of fear. That's the other way that these can be experienced. That when, at a deep subconscious level, there is the insight that due to the appearance of these things, um, they are fearful, it elicits the actual emotion of fear. And the meditator feels very powerful fear arising. When it moves to the next knowledge of danger, the meditator feels miserable because of this danger. The knowledge of disenchantment, rather than being a more uh, gentle disengagement through the recognition of the, of, of the dangerousness, instead it's, it elicits a powerful feeling of disgust. The, and what is disgust with? Disgust with the world, disgust with life. It's a, it's a pretty terrible thing to experience if it comes on really strongly. You can imagine what it's like to be they're filled with danger and misery and disgust. That's why the Dupanyanas can be a dark night. They can be simply the knowledge of suffering and, and how it relates to all this, or they can be an experience. Why does this experience happen? Well, what we're coming out of is a really profound realization of impermanence and emptiness. And so one part of your mind is getting this all sorted out, saying, aha, okay, that's the way things really are. There's this other part of your mind, that's the part of your mind that still thinks of itself as a, uh, a self-existent entity in some way. And it says, oh my God, this is terrible, what am I going to do? And of course the other part of your mind says, oh, don't worry, no problem. You're a permanent and empty too. <laughs> What? <laughs> that doesn't make any better. That's even worse. <laughs> and so it elicits, it elicits exactly the same emotional reactions that you would expect in any situation where you are being confronted with your own impermanence. I mean, what does it mean to be confronted with your impermanence in, in ordinary life? It's, it's the, the fear and danger of death, of destruction, right? And your mind, that part of your mind that sees it in that way is going to re react with exactly the same emotions that you would feel if you suddenly discovered that you were on the tracks and there was an oncoming locomotive. A lot of really strong fear and danger. Um, and then the knowledge of disgust is when you realize that there's no way off the tracks. <laughs> that even if you step off this track, you're just stepping onto a different track with a different locomotive, and so forth. And, and there's no place to go, that there's no escape. That this, this is the world that you are in, and that's the problem. You're saying this is the world that I am in. <coughs> and so there, there's fear, misery and disgust. That's 
Can you also describe that as like a free fall or a real anchor? So yes, yes. It is, um, it is a feeling of the, the ground falling out of you, out from under you, uh, not, nothing to hold on to. Uh, yeah. And number nine? Number nine is the desire for deliverance. Uh, now this is in, in, its, in its less traumatic form, it is just simply the insight that <coughs> insight is sort of like, wow, I'm, I, I'm glad that I see how things are. And, uh, and so, therefore, I need, to, I, I need to become, I need to finish the path. I need to <coughs> discover the way that is going to save me from this situation. See what I said about this in the handout. Okay, the, the in its less traumatic form, it is the detachment from worldly things. No clinging to any uh, form of worldly existence. I'm not going to make this mistake anymore. I, I'm ready to move on. But for somebody who uh, for somebody else, it's very yes. This is very. I haven't actually been through this in its negative form. I'll tell you. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was surprised to discover from other people just how how terribly traumatic these can be. Because for me, it was a uh, it was pretty gentle, pretty gentle and pretty quick. The description: painful feelings in the body make it difficult to sit. The mind seems to shrink from the meditation object, making it difficult to continue to practice. The desire for deliverance, instead of taking the form of, of well, I'm not going to make this mistake. Instead, it is sort of, it's more the, the frantic, where's the escape, where's the way out? But, but, you know, how do, it it's, has that quality to it. So it makes it hard to sit still. It makes it hard to focus on the meditation object because your your gut instincts are are this is a terrible situation. I've got to get out of here. I've got to find the exit. So you don't have the clarity to say, oh, this is the exit. This is the exit. And keep on going is the exit. It is that people get to this stage, and the the misery that they experience during during these insights puts them off of meditation. Um, it, yeah, it it happens enough. So this is traditionally known as the rolling up the mat stage. <laughs> <laughs> that that is that's its other name, other than dukkhanyamas, is rolling up the mat stage. Because uh, people will quit. People in you know, um, people who are in a retreat, you know, even at a retreat center, mat monastic setting, will say that's it. And they'll pack up and they'll leave. And you know, I've talked to some of my friends of mine and who, who actually did this. And 
it's kind of a common knowledge that if you hit this stage and you can't take it anymore and leave, what you do about it? If you if you happen to be doing this retreat in uh, somewhere in Southeast Asia, is you head for Bangkok and. <laughs> You, you go to the bars, and you go to the best restaurants you can find to, and you go to cheap movies, and you go dancing, and, and you have sex, and, you know. What do the women do? I don't know the answer to that, except I guarantee it's the... Female equivalent. <laughs> 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 what it is, if you see it, it's, ra- it's a rather transparent attempt to forget everything you learned and go back to the, the state of ignorance where you believe that, <laughs> that the sensual pleasures are. This is all there is. We're all there is, yeah, right. Um, and is that usually short-lived, and then they go back to? Well, it it, it 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 can it can unfold in a number of forms. Like for example, if somebody doesn't uh, doesn't leave, they can spend a lot of time going through these dukkhanas and keep keep working at it, keep trying, but keep experiencing the suffering. And for some people, it can take a long time. Some people uh, will it will it cannot be resolved in any short period of time in a retreat. It can be extended over weeks and months, and it can put them in a, in a terrible state that makes it very difficult for them to function in their ordinary lives, mm-hmm. because they, they're in that place, they'd like to escape, they don't know how. Um, some of you, I think, know the, the uh, person who owns this house, Willoughby Britton, who TCMC rents it from. And uh, she went through this, and it lasted many, many months for her. It was very terrible. And uh, so she has taken it up as a part of her research study. She's a psychologist at Brown. And so she's studying this experience uh, because she feels like it's something that, that most people who take up meditation don't know about. What she... I've, I've told her, but she doesn't really realize is that there is a way that you, you don't have to go through this. You know, uh, as I've already explained to you, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. You know, but it, that's one form it can take, is that it, it can be extremely hard to meditate. So here you are, you're stuck in this state. You try to meditate, you can't meditate. Your life's totally upset. Your life seems meaningless, pointless, uh, everything's frustrating, things are irritating, uh, you feel alternately anxiety and depression or sometimes both together. It's, it's not a good state to be in. And that's the worst case. It can go on for a really long time. Um, and some people in that situation do the same thing. They try to immerse themselves in sensual pleasures and distractions and things like that. And that actually does work. I mean, as a strategy, that is one that works. It doesn't really work as well as you'd like it to. But what I hear is that in the short term, though, it's a really good way to anesthetize yourself. But it wears off. 
and the and ultimately what you really have to do uh, to get beyond it is is to go through it. You have to go back to meditation, go back to the practice. If you're you, if you can go into a retreat, if you're in a retreat, stay in the retreat. Um, if you can't do that, then just keep doing your best to practice and work your way through it. But for some, for some it lasts, you know, you go through all of these pain, 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 pain. It all happens in one sitting. And, you, you know, you feel twinges of these emotions, but that's all. It's just the kind of dying gasp, so to speak, of the old world view <laughs> as it's changed, you know. Yes? I'm not sure if this is what you're talking about, but I'm wondering what this is, and I guess I don't have to know, but like four years ago when I met you, I told you I thought I was losing my mind and I had such bad pain coming out of my shoulder yeah. that I didn't know what was going on. And, you know, should I go on antidepressants? And the shoulder always just gave me unbelievable pain. Yeah. And, you know, but in the seven-day sit that I just did a couple of weeks ago, I, you know, was undetermined and I eased down and up on the practice, but in the seven days sit, I gave it, you know, love and told it was part of me, and I watched it travel all through me and rip across my chest and come out this way, and then, and then I felt, you know, I was doing push-ups, I was so happy after. At first I felt a little bit dizzy and was going to go, and then I did a yasa that night, and I don't even, I can't even do push-ups, but it's coming back into that shoulder. And is that a different kind of pain? Because the pain with sitting and the pain with, you know, positioning and things like that, I can deal with. But this one is a little bit tricky yeah. for me. It could be part of that. I mean, we'd have to talk about a lot of other things, right? you know. But that is a possibility. All, all I can really say from this brief interchange is that it's a possibility. It could be a part of that. We we need to uh, we need to discuss a number of other things to really make that judgment definitively. Um, so and and the really sad thing is some people have to go through this a, a number of times. You know, um, they go through this. Uh, it kind of eases off. They get to be okay again, and then they're maybe ready to go back to practicing again. And they, they get, they get to the A and P, the arising and passing away, and then they get to the dissolution, and they're back into it. And sometimes they have to go through it several times before they move on to to the next stage. And the other thing that uh, I, I I have heard happens, and uh, certainly uh, I think I have seen some people. I suspect this has happened too, is that they quit. They become, their, their disenchantment is not just disenchantment with, with the things that are so dangerous and fearful. They become disenchanted with the whole dharma. They become disenchanted with meditation. I think maybe that's what you're asking. It does happen. Um, they don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. Or if they've already invested most of their life in this, um, you know, uh, then they're in a kind of a, an interesting state. They're stuck in this place, but they no longer believe in it. They no longer believe 
uh, in the Dharma, they're afraid of the practice, uh, so they have to find some other way to manage your life. Can you imagine if you spent 20 years of your life um, and you got you got to this place? Uh, you've already invested so much so much of your life in in the Dharma that it you need it to continue to be in your life. But, but in your heart, you're you're. You, you not only don't believe in it anymore, you're afraid of it. And I think that does happen. And I think we see that sometimes. But let's not dwell on the worst side of it. <laughs> 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 it can also be experienced as a relief, right? What's that? It can also be experienced as a relief. Well, it, and, and this, this is what it does come to. It comes to be a great relief if we... If, if you continue through it, I'll tell you what a more, a much more common scenario is, rather than this going on for months and months, is that it will go on for a few days, and it will be, it will be several very unpleasant days. But if you're fortunate, you have a good uh, meditation teacher who keeps encouraging you and reassuring you and, and reminding you that the only way through this is to keep practicing and you keep doing your best. That's probably the most common scenario. Right? Uh, so I've given you the best case and the worst case and what's more common is not so bad. As a matter of fact, when you come out the other side, it's like, Oof, wow, that's... Uh, Well, this is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> so you suggested we don't have to go through this. Can I have the shortcut, please? Yeah, the, okay. I'm giving you the shortcut. I'm saying you you develop really strong samatha. You make sure that when you get here, you've got tranquility and equanimity and joy on your side. And on your way there, you make sure that you you are as clear intellectually as you can be that. There is no permanent abiding self. That is just a, another formation of your mind. And you verify that in as many different ways as you can through actual experience. Through those experiences in meditation where, I mean, the simplest one, and it is very powerful, even though it's very simple. Those experiences where you can really clearly see, you know, <coughs> And the walking is only in the walking, and the talking is only the talking, and the seeing is only the seeing. That there isn't someone there who's in charge and doing this, and feeling this, and deciding this. That it's the more, the more you can come to that place, whether it's only thirty seconds at a time. I mean, better yet, you can keep it going for much period, more longer periods than that. It's where it's really clear to you that, yeah, this is just. This is just what's happening. It's impersonal. That's a good word to use. To see the impersonalness of ordinary experience. And the more you do that, easier it's going to be to go through that. Would you give us an example of how to bring fear during the meditation? The ways? How to bring the fear into the meditation session. How to how to have the knowledge there when you are meditating? 
It's something that you bring into you, something that you just... You're talking about this first in the, in the yes. knowledge of fear. How does it happen? Yes. Well, as an insight, it's just, it's an understanding. It's an understanding that just arises, uninvited, into consciousness. Uh, it doesn't actually interrupt your practice. But it's just, now you know. Let me see it this way. Now, it, it, will, it will probably carry some degree of emotion with it. But it might be just a little, like I say, just little twinges. Or it could be really strong. If it's really strong, then the fear itself might interrupt your meditation. But it's not the, it's not the insight that interrupts your meditation. Because the insight's kind of a, it's not the kind of, un, when the understanding comes, it's, it's not something that's verbal, it's not a thought process that's going to take you away from following sensations of your breath. It's just kind of a, aha, while you continue. But if the fear comes up, now that can, that can pull you away. Does that, does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah. Also, is there, it seems to me, some fear that can be associated with the, the losing of the self or the... Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's the, it's the fear of the death of the self. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And when we, when we get to the path knowledge, that often comes back uh, at that point, too. But that's exactly what it is. It's the fear. It's the the fear of death, and the fear of death is the death of the self. And almost like if we identify with our mind, and that it's that mind is no longer in control or no longer um, in in existence the way we think it Good. is. It's well, like, and, it's like and, and that is. That is how it comes about because we do identify with our mind. Yeah. We do, you know. Uh, most of you, if you if you took the time to try to, to just decide exactly uh, what am I most attached to as myself, you'd quickly come to the conclusion: well, it's my mind, my mind and my consciousness. And now you've just had this experience of mind itself ceasing, consciousness itself disappearing, and the inference. The very accurate inference is it's not just the consciousness that I see that is insubstantial and disappears and is impermanent. It's it's all consciousness. It's my it, it, even the mind that's watching this happen. Uh, it, it, it is going. It is happening too as well. And so that's what throws us into it. We see we see the impermanence of of mind and of consciousness, and therefore of anything that we could pin our hopes on for some kind of substantial self. You get these very much out of the corner of your eye where you kind of see, and I I mean this very vaguely, Mm -hmm. you kind of suspect these things. And then it's just not convenient to keep gazing at that. It isn't that you really even see yourself pushing that away. It just it's 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 
it's as it's as transient as that famous looking at the retinal blind spot thing that you all go through in, in early sight class where you hold the three by five card just so and the dot disappears. Right. And it's just about that impersonal that you go, oh look, there I'm not. Yeah. And then it's it's a cool beans trick and then you go on with your life. You, you don't spend the rest of your life saying, oh my God, my retina has a blind spot. Who knew? <laughs> and, That's and, right. And so you, you see this, and it, I mean, can you do this? And, and you can't really keep your mind on it, but it doesn't really make an impact either? Yes, that's, that's what I was, I, I was talking about that yesterday, and but maybe even Friday like night. It's vague. You know, these insights, they do come into your peripheral awareness. And there's all kinds of reasons why they stay there only a brief time and disappear. But yes, they do. And out of the corner of your eye, that's, it. that's exactly what it's like. Out of the corner of your mind's eye, you see this <coughs> truth, and but you're not ready for it. Uh, think of it just in terms of that, that your mind is many different mental processes, and some are much more attached to these than others. And for something to come to the place where you can have a conscious realization of it that you actually hold on to, that it requires enough mass behind it. It requires enough different parts of your mind that now share that insight for, for it to reach that point. And this sense of establishment you suggest again and again really can happen kind of passively by just continuing to hit the cushion. Yes. You don't have to engineer it. Uh, as a matter of fact, that it, how you engineer <coughs> it is by watching your mind. Ultimately, you know, as uh, as Nick said earlier, this seems like all of this is all about the mind. Yes, it is. And meditation is ultimately all about watching the, the mind. We just we just watch the breath to get the mind under control, and then the shift goes to watching the mind. That's that's where all the important discoveries happen. And so, yeah, that's how you engineer it, is by watching the mind. Seems as though many of us here have said, a lot of this is in fits and starts and bits, really familiar. But then we sit here listening to you, trying to engage it into a bigger structure. Yes. And, and a lot of us, I hear, are, are kind of trying to coax from you. I, is there a checklist so I can know how far I am? Yeah, and, 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 and some of it is this, but then you have to go around and say, uh, it's not, sometimes it's not linear, sometimes it is. So but, they're, they're, but it's still a checklist. Even though it's not a completely linear checklist, it's, it, is, it is pretty linear. It's linear enough to use it in that way, the 18 knowledges. The other thing that's really useful to tell you how far you are, and, and it's not in a linear sequence, are those 18 great insights. You just read through those and think, how, how deeply, how, how well does that describe my intuitive response to things? What is the... Where, what do you do when you sit with the fact that your your intuition is squishy and brief? 
and you get all of these out of the flicker of your eye for a, 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 a fraction of a second, and then you have to go back to being before. Well, what you do is you say, "Well, isn't this great? I, you know, I, I, I've already got this much. This is already happening this much." But it's not enough, and I'm all attached. I want more. Well. Yeah, you'll have to work on that. But let me just point something out to you. How did the Buddha, with no teacher at all, discover all of this? How is it that some people become spontaneously enlightened while getting on a bus on the street in Paris? I mean, it's not like this is... is what I really want to do is to remove a lot of the magic and mystery it is much more about engineering uh, in the sense of creating the causes and conditions. Of course, once you've created the causes and conditions, you've got to totally let go and get out of the way. That's as far as you can go with your engineering. But it's not, it's not magic. It's not some terribly mysterious thing that's so far out of everybody else's experience that you can't even imagine it. No. Everybody has... Already, I mean, you know, we were talking about this earlier. What this sense of familiarity, like here I am in the middle of, of experiencing emptiness, and it's familiar. Well, of course it is. You've really been there all along, and there are parts of your mind that have known it. Nothing that you're going to experience here is completely new to you. Because, as a matter of fact, as your mind formed its concept of self and as it formed its concept of the world, where did it start from? Mm -hmm. It started from here. That's why we're trying to get back to, you know, you see your face before you were born, right? Beginner's mind. Right. I like to ask something about when you talked about the danger. I have heard people uh, who took drugs saying that losing the mind and consciousness and the danger was real and they lost it afterwards. Mm -hmm. So yeah. then the research was maybe the drugs did it too fast. So my question would be, if you can compare that, is there not an, an, a positive um, um, duty, or not duty is not the right word, a, a positive way for resistance, the mind is not yet ready to let go, so to honor that too? When you, when you come to this place of you, you describe as complete confusion and fear and, and danger and losing it all and everything is, is uh, without meaning? Well, there is and there isn't uh, to the point that you can, but a lot of, to a certain degree, it's like once you've stepped out of the airplane, you've got to pull a parachute cord. You can't try to climb back in. <laughs> uh, there are, and, and, and that's why, that, you know, when you get to the arising and passing away, you can quit. When you get to the dissolution, you can back away if you do it quickly enough. But once you get into these dukkha jhanas, you're kind of, you know, you've gone, you've gone too far. <laughs> and, and to not go the rest of the way is is only going to make things worse. So, so once you reach that point, <coughs> there's nothing left to honor. You're in free fall. 
you're either gonna you're either gonna pull a cord on your parachute or you're gonna suffer the consequences. Fortunately, you can fall for a long way and still have time to pull the cord. The slower process you are saying makes it makes it possible for the mind to digest it, to to, to adjust, to transform well, to the process is slower because the mind does have to digest. Yeah. 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 That's what makes it yeah. slower. Okay. Yeah. Right. And in a sense, you might say that you have arrived prematurely. You're still too attached to self when you get here. So, so the, the, the time to honor that is before you get to this point and to really, really get clear on all three of these other insights before you, before you get to this point. Yeah. And where I would really agree with Willoughby Britton is that people in practice are not told that and the reason they're not told that is most of the teachers don't understand it. What is what is the outcome of going through all the danger, the fear? What is the point? That's what we're going to talk about <laughs> after we come back from lunch. <laughs> 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 